Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast. I am your host, Dr. Julieta Gabiola, clinical professor of medicine at Stanford University. What drew me to medicine was the science, the innovation, and the promise for a comfortable life. But what has kept me in medicine are the real people, their lives, and their stories, as well as the translation of medical innovations into practical applications. This podcast will explore experiences beyond the walls and corridors of the hospital, laboratories, and clinics. I invite you to share in our journey seeking to preserve and improve our lives, our sense of balance, and our well-being. Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast. This is episode 15, which is actually the second part of episode 14. That episode got too long, so we cut it into two. So this is a continuation of the question and answers on COVID-19 with Nicole Samignani. Welcome to our podcast. That's really interesting. I actually didn't know that they're recommending that to healthcare professionals now from the CDC. And in regards to, you know, myself and I'm sure other listeners as well, I am healthy and I feel so fortunate that I haven't contracted COVID. I've been taking all the precautions to do so. Do you recommend that I take the vaccine if offered? Yes, yes, and yes. And I'll tell you why. Although many people have mild disease, as I mentioned, a certain percentage is about 15 to 20 percent develop severe illness and may die from it. If one survives, there's also risk of lingering infections, the long haulers. I certainly don't want to be one of those long haulers. So vaccine also will be useful to prevent the illness and severe illness and being a long hauler as a potential consequence. The vaccine also will probably protect 100% from severe disease and hospitalizations, although it may not prevent the mild disease form. Also, if you get vaccinated, you will help in getting us closer to the coveted herd immunity threshold, which is about 80%. And we will get to that earlier time to reopen society if we have more vaccinated people and the people who got infected. So to get to that herd immunity, that is the summation of people who were infected with the virus, either symptomatic or asymptomatic, accounts for that herd immunity, as well as vaccination. So it's not just vaccinations, it's also the infection that contributes to that herd immunity. Again, Vaccination is only one more tool to prevent the disease. So if you're healthy and you have less comorbidity, it's really still better to be vaccinated. And then vaccine also has been shown to decrease transmission. IgG is higher and we believe that IgG and IgA will be present in your nose. So it prevents people from harboring the virus in their nose and throat and the vaccine is also needed if you're a healthcare worker, healthy healthcare worker, or if you're an essential worker, or if you are a caretaker to your family, to your elderly parents. And I would weigh the lack of major risk for the vaccine and the severe risk for contracting COVID, especially if you have the severe disease. So nobody can predict whether you ha you will have a mild or severe diseases. And I still think prevention is key to COVID-19. So I would say, yes, take the vaccine if it's offered to you. Great. 
Thank you. And can you just clarify a little bit, what is comorbidity and what are they? It is the term that we use in medicine where it represents other illnesses that you have with the existing illness. So, for example, comorbidity of COVID-19 will include diseases like hypertension, heart disease, heart failure, diabetes, chronic bronchitis, COPD, and asthma, chronic kidney and liver disease, malignancy, obesity, and conditions like smoking, immunosuppressions, and on immunosuppressive drugs. And then there are also other factors that are not considered illnesses or comorbidity, unless one will consider aging as a disease. But all these other additional factors can portend poor outcome. And that includes age over 60. And that's the reason why elderly people were vaccinated first. And then recent major surgery, for example, within two weeks, pregnancy, as we mentioned, are at increased risk, as well as other social determinants that were actually magnified during COVID-19 pandemic. And that is poverty, your living conditions, your race, how many people living in your household, your job, etc. Right. Absolutely. And can we touch a little bit more um, just to explain how the vaccine actually works? So one of the listeners asked, will the mRNA vaccine alter my genes? No. mRNA from this COVID vaccine does not really get into your nucleus of your cell and do not really interact with your DNA. So this mRNA is inside a lipid wall and gets into your body, into the cytoplasm, and does not actually get into the nucleus. Then your body simply translates the code from your mRNA into a protein and make copies of the protein against the spike protein of the virus and then further stimulate B-cell response to produce neutralizing antibody against the spike protein. The mRNA then quickly gets degraded. And that's the advantage of the mRNA technology is they can be tweaked easily and they can be produced easily and they could be scalable to adjust against the emerging variants. Yeah, and we've heard about so many companies and pharmaceutical companies creating vaccines. So I'm wondering what or one of the listeners asked, what are the vaccines for covid And how safe are they? We have so far two in the United States that were approved for emergency use and others in other countries like AstraZeneca. Historically, vaccines have been useful in prevention of infection and transmission of diseases. Vaccines plus infection, both symptomatic and asymptomatic, as I mentioned, lead to the herd immunity threshold so we can get closer to going back to the previous normal that we once had or we once knew before COVID. So I am grateful for the warp speed development of the vaccines. It comes in a time that they are extremely important. They also are only one tool in preventing the disease and spread, second only to the public health measures for now. 
but can really get us close to the herd immunity. So what are the type of COVID vaccines? All of them work on the same pathway, by the way, something to do with the spike protein and creating antibodies. The body then will proceed to also activate the cell-mediated immunity, like the T cells, which are important not only in mediating severe disease and also portend longer-lasting immunity. So the mRNA vaccine that I mentioned that relates the signal or gives your body the instruction to make the protein is injected to you, and then the body makes more copies of the the protein to to fight to help you fight the infection. So now we have two mRNA vaccines, the Moderna and vaccine and Pfizer vaccine that were approved and then in the United States and there are also the protein subunit vaccine, these are the recombinant protein coronavirus protein that contains harmless pieces of the protein from the virus that cause covid instead of the entire virus and with an And the example of that is the Novavax, which should come out also pretty soon. We have the vector DNA vaccine. These are weakened version of light virus. The DNA is inserted in a carrier or vector. And an example of that is the AstraZeneca, which has the modified chimp adenovirus, which is the common called virus, modified to look like coronavirus. And then the J&J, which should come out here, coming up probably February 26th. And then the Sputnik from Russia. So those are the human adenovirus vaccines. Yeah. I mean, in terms of the perspective on vaccines, though, I would add on that, for example, influenza virus had been around since the 60s, and they were only 44 to 50 percent effective, and they managed to keep influenza at bay. And then we have the MMR vaccine, which is 97 percent effective, and it's been effective the last 60 years. Chickenpox vaccines... 92% effective, as you know. And then you remember the polio vaccine, which were very instrumental in preventing the paralytic polio disease. And then, of course, the hepatitis vaccine. On and on, we have a lot of these vaccines available, but for now, limited yet for the uh, vaccines for COVID-19. And the AstraZeneca, for example, is still ongoing. It's almost finished with the phase three trials and probably soon will be out uh, here in the U.S. as well. So in terms of effective, like, for example, the Pfizer vaccine, which is an mRNA vaccine, it's administered in two doses, three weeks apart, 100% efficacious against severe disease and about 95% effective against mild disease. So overall effectiveness, about 95%. The problem with that is the storage. You know, you need minus 70 degrees. The Moderna vaccine which is also mRNA vaccine, two doses, four weeks apart, with 97% effective rate against severe disease and about 94% effective against mild disease. Better storage, only minus 20 degrees needed. The Novavax is accelerating enrollment now as a result of the decreased production of Pfizer and Moderna. And so far, it showed robust protection in a large British trial. About 100% 
effective against severe disease and 89% effective against mild disease. And then, for example, the recombinant protein coronavirus vaccine like J&J, it's one dose and it's 100% effective against hospitalization and 85% effective against a severe disease. And mind you, 89% effective against the South African variant. So overall effective rate is only 66%, but it does have an advantage. It doesn't require refrigeration and the J&J is only one dose as well. And it's been shown to achieve 100% neutralizing antibody levels after 59 days. I don't know much about the CoronaVac, which is inactivated virus, like killed virus. It's like rabies vaccine. And that's only stored in minus two degrees. The AstraZeneca vaccine, it's approved, as I mentioned, the UK and European countries, not yet in the US. It's a DNA viral vector, adenovirus as a vector. It's it's shown to have, it's a two-dose vaccine, and it's been shown to be effective if you wait like two to three months between doses versus the four weeks that they had shown in the trial. So, and it's 100%, the AstraZeneca is 100% effective against severe disease and 85 to 88% effective against mild disease. It's cheaper doable for developing countries and does not does not require cold storage so it looks pretty promising the sputnik from russia two doses it it has two different human adenovirus as vectors and they may provide longer and stronger immunity when looked at in 22000 participants and 100% effective also against severe disease and 91% effective in mild diseases. So we worry most about the effective rate of vaccines in preventing severe disease and hospitalization. So yeah, so those are just examples of the vaccines that we have available that are in the pipeline. Yeah, great. And yeah, I'm glad there's so many vaccines out and people really have options depending on where they are. And you mentioned price, which is also a really big topic for people. I wanted to go back and talk a little bit about the quick development of the vaccines. This listener shares a similar concern. And they said that anything that is developed so quickly has them worried. So regarding the safety and the possibility of possible cut corners in the development of the vaccine. What would you recommend with them being fearful and thinking that the vaccine is not safe? That, that's a good question. I know everyone is worried about the warp speed development of all these viral vaccines. And there has been initially a lot of mistrust earlier on, lack of transparencies and the media not in alignment with our leaders in many countries, right? So let me reassure you about the mRNA vaccines. They are safe. So the novel way that mRNA vaccines were developed is a actually a novel response to a novel virus. They had gone through the usual safety and efficacy trials, but just in a warp speed rate, right? So it does not mean that safety issues were skipped or bypassed. And looking back at the data, it looks like it's as good as it gets. The people entered into the trials are the people who are at higher risk for infections. And also because of the pandemic, we were under the gun in terms of 
doing something and creating something as the virus is spreading viciously and affecting all the facets of our lives. So here's how the vaccine got accelerated to reassure you further. The mRNA technology is not new. It's been around for about a decade. It's been used in cancer and viral research for about a decade, as I mentioned. It's been tested against Zika virus, Ebola virus, and various cancers. So when China shared the SARS-CoV-2 genetic sequencing and the material earlier on, our vaccine developers got into motion. So they got an early jump start in terms of creating this mRNA technology for vaccine. So the testing process was as rigorous and there were no steps skipped. But the steps or the phases of development were conducted simultaneously to gather data quickly. So they still went to this phase one, phase two, three trials. The government also gave advanced funding to the biotech and pharmaceutical company. And they also sent experts in the field to help in the development of the vaccine. So again, mRNA is a different technology, so people are uncomfortable with it, but it is a great technology. It's much faster to develop, so that's why they got it out in record time, I think a seven to eight months, and it can get tweaked, can get tweaked faster. And of course, it's scalable, so it's really good. Another thing that helped the the acceleration of the vaccine creation and implementation is social media. So we have the value of social media, which helped create like a platform for people to reach out and enroll as volunteers. So more and more communities also, because they were severely affected by the pandemic, they got mobilized and got inspired to help as research participants. And then companies also manufactured vaccines way, way before authorization because they were guaranteed by federal government they would be authorized. That's what accelerated the uh, development of the vaccines. For now, we now have like regulatory boards and the FDA and expert panels are continuously monitoring the side effects and other problems associated with the vaccines. And thus far, no one died and no red flags. Right. And I want to shift the conversation a little bit over to contraindications in receiving the vaccine. So I know that there was a lot of news circulating and it was also recommended that people with severe allergies speak to their primary care providers before receiving the vaccine. A viewer shared that they are prone to allergies. They said they have allergic rhinitis, asthma, and eczema, and they're wondering if they should be worried in regards to their allergies and receiving the new vaccine. Yeah, yeah, I understand your concerns and everyone's concern about the tolerability and side effect profile and allergies for this vaccine. So let me help put this in perspective. So as you know, if you explore all the medicines given to you by your practitioner, there are hundreds and hundreds reported side effects. If you look at the literature, you will be scared of taking anything. The side effects, for example, of aspirin and Tylenol and any antibiotics you were given have a potential of like hundreds potential side effects. And also from the vaccines that were out there, like for example, the shingle vaccines, which had 
70% side effects, fatigue, myalgias, pain on this side are whopping 79% or so, swelling. The mRNA vaccines are are very safe. They are synthetic. So there's no egg protein. Like, for example, when you were given your flu vaccine, they ask you, are you allergic to egg protein? So they have excellent safety record. There's no biologic component, protein or toxic substance in the vaccine. And when one looks at the side effect profile, very mild, maybe mild fever, muscle aches, fatigue, about 2%, and mild local dermal or local side effect like swelling and pain and redness on the site of injection. No one died of the serious injury, of serious injury from the vaccine. Safety are monitored consistently globally. And the side effects, which are mild, as I mentioned, usually occur within the next 15 minutes and they could be observed after they receive the vaccine. In terms of allergies, if you are, for example, allergic to pets and dander and food, should you get the vaccine? Yes, you could get the vaccine. You may be watched closely. And I know the healthcare practitioners ask you whether you have allergy predisposition or a history of allergies. If you look at all allergic reaction, like for example, putting it into perspective, penicillin, the allergic reaction, for example, to this mRNA vaccines are a hundred times less than penicillin. And then out of the, for example, two million vaccines that were given, there were only like about 21 cases of anaphylaxis out of two million vaccines administered. And they occurred within 15 minutes while people were being monitored at the site of the vaccination area. All recovered and no one died. And also about maybe like, so the case probably is like 11 anaphylaxis per million since the vaccine has been rolled out. And those people were managed uh, appropriately at emergency rooms and, and, and everyone survived. In terms of the severe, severe allergic reaction, which tends to be immediate, like what you see in peanut allergy or bee sting allergy, where the blood pressure drops and people have respiratory compromise and fast heart rate requiring EpiPen injection. Those severe reactions were shown maybe one in every million doses. And out of those treated, 17 were treated with EpiPen and they were mainly healthcare workers and obviously predominantly women. So most of those, when they look back, they had 80% of them had history of allergies. So those who develop these allergies. And compared to like in the general public, only about 30% in the general public. It is anticipated though that the most common side effect will occur within the 30 to 45 days and even earlier and that there is no long-term side effect of allergy. As we accrue more data from our real-world dissemination of the the vaccines, we will see more data, but it looks like there is less and less frequency of anaphylaxis and also less and less frequency of severe allergic reaction requiring ER intervention. 
the mechanism of the allergy is not known. It may be due to the polyethylene glycol, which is in your laxatives. So it's not known. So it's still being studied. If you have symptoms of allergy, you may alert the the one administering your shot. And the recommendation now, if you were allergic to the first one, avoid the second one. And then a referral may be needed to your allergy specialist as well. Great, great. And there's also been a lot of news on new strains across the globe. I feel like that has kind of sent a new wave of fear to people. So I know there's a lot of concerns with the new variants. Could you elaborate on this topic a little bit? Are these variants covered by our existing vaccines? Oh, yeah. Mutants and variants. Yes, yes. It's a hot topic. So for every virus, mutations are bound to happen. Everyone knows that. The flu vaccine, for example, mutates frequently and sometimes from year to year, we don't even know whether the vaccine will work or not work. This also happens in bacteria. So virus mutate. They replicate and mutate for survival. Mutation emerge and disappear or may persist. Uh, mutations can make them more virulent. They can spread easily or they may have a better attachment to the host. And mutation may also escape our own immunologic surveillance. So what does it mean? Multiple variants, for example, had been identified globally. The popular UKB1 There is several mutations. They're spreading more quickly and easily. We have about more than 1,100 cases in the United States in more than 40 states. This may become the predominant variant of COVID-2. It is also, though it spreads easily, it's really not a real concern because our vaccines had been shown to be still effective and we still have neutralizing antibody that's quite effective. Having said that, we should also still pay attention to our public health measures like masking, distancing, avoiding crowds, and hand washing. It seems that this variant seems to be in younger people under 20, although the older are more susceptible also to the UK variant. So drug companies are looking at altering the current mRNA vaccine to address these ongoing mutations. The South African variant, the B1351, reported in about 17 cases already in the United States, is more of a concern. It is shown to be a little bit more virulent, meaning its ability to make you sicker is more. But the vaccine seems to still be effective, although with a reduced neutralizing antibody level. It has several mutations on the surface, so it may be difficult for our antibodies to recognize it. There may be multiple sites, for example, that may escape our own immunologic surveillance mechanism as a result of vaccination. But it still seems to be responding to our current vaccine. Regarding the South African vaccine, if one looks at the vaccinated people, it seems that half of the subjects had undetectable antibody to the variant. Now, the Brazilian variant is reported to be like about three in the U.S. and in two states, but they may change as well. And now more worrisome is the uh, Bristol variant, which is reported to be surfacing in the United States. And the vaccine may be less and less effective to the Bristol variant. So these these mutations are being monitored through frequent 
viral sequencing, and they are monitored for their significance to public health, like looking at how severe the disease they cause, how do they spread, do they spread quickly, do they require different mode of treatment, or are vaccines effective, where do they spread, and who are being affected by them. So more to follow on this as our scientists are looking how these epidemiologic studies are being conducted. Right. And I think that as a society, we're all kind of reaching a point of fatigue in our quarantine. And we're kind of in this weird place where we're really happy this vaccine is out. We're hoping that we can start going out again and getting some close relations with our family and friends. So what do you recommend (laughs) you do for now while we're in this process of receiving the vaccine? Well, I would be hopeful. I'm a perpetual optimist. I will be patient. So for now, what would I recommend? I would intensify public health measures as we talked about, vaccinate as fast and as many people as we can to prevent the viral replication. So if we prevent replication, we also prevent mutation. So if we could vaccine as fast as we can, as many as we can, that would be helpful. And we should should crush this virus globally so it doesn't evolve from season to season because season in many countries are different. So we should also help our neighboring countries who can get back as fast as we can vaccinate, for example, in the United States. So we could reach herd immunity as early as we can. So yeah, that's what I would do. I will be flexible. I'll be patient. Uh, there's always the light at the end of the tunnel. I learned that in medical school where I should postpone gratification for as long as I can, be flexible, be hopeful. Yeah, great. And then what are some reassuring advantages that we need to consider to lessen any worry someone still has? Well, there are reassuring advantages that we already know. We know that people have broad antibody response to the viral infection and to the vaccine. Although labs have different reports on assays, we know that different labs have variable level of assays in terms of the level of neutralizing antibodies. So I would not be just so into like, how many percent is the neutralizing antibodies? Because the immune system is beyond just antibody production. We have the the fighter cells, the killer cells, the helper cells. So those are the ones that we are not able to measure, but are very, very important in our ammunition against this antibody. So there's a warfare inside our body. And those T-cells, are very, very active in helping us ward off this infection. And also a reassuring thing about COVID-19. COVID-19 has a slow kinetics. So our immune system has time to do all the amplification responses that we need. And and the RNA virus tend to mutate less faster than, for example, the DNA viruses. And For example, Moderna and Pfizer are exploring various ways to tweak the vaccine to address the new variants. So I am sure others are also doing the same. So fortunately, vaccines are a lot easier to tweak and easier to, to kind of roll out. So there are these reassurances that we need to continue our hope and optimism. Yeah, absolutely. And what would your recommendations be to patients who are immunosuppressed, either by their disease or through intake of any immunosuppressants. 
Do you think that they should take the vaccine? And when would you recommend they do? Yeah, that is a, a great question. And to all those folks out there with immune suppression, either by your illness or having to take antisuppressant drugs, I know it's a source of concern. Although these patients were excluded from the trials, so we don't have data from the clinical trials to guide us on how to advise you. So it will entail discussion with your rheumatologist, with your primary care physician. But looking at all those studies so far, reports has been substantial percentage of the immune suppressed people have avoided hospitals, have avoided clinic visits, and also have avoided laboratories. And many of those people also have stopped their medications because of fear that it increased their susceptibility to the COVID-19. So I know you are concerned. So reports from COVID-19 rheumatology registry, though, have been very reassuring and has not revealed increased risk for COVID complications if you're on immunosuppressant drugs, unless you are on a high-dose corticosteroid. So what do you consider? Well, consider talking to your rheumatologist and PCP and have great guidance. And people, for example, on methotrexate, it shows that methotrexates decreases your immunogenicity from the flu vaccine by about 10 to 20 percent, meaning that it's less effective and they're also more allergic reaction to the virus. So some people recommend to hold your methotrexate doses for two doses before you get the flu vaccine. In terms of the efficacy of the vaccine in these people, it seems to me that if you have active autoimmune disease, it decreases your responsiveness and reactivity to the virus. So I would vaccinate when your disease is in better control or under remission. People, for example, on rituximab, we suggest that you take the vaccine before your rituximab dose, for example, because people on rituximab, you have B-cell depletion. And when the rituximab is given, there's even decrease in B-cell, including memory cell, within a few weeks and within 24 weeks. So I would say look for a window to get the vaccine before your next infusion of rituximab. But this entails really a visit to your immunologist or rheumatologist. I mean, in terms of question or would I have flare on my disease that could viral infection trigger a flare of my disease? Infection may be triggered, may trigger a flare, or may even prevent a flare or your autoimmune disease. An example of which is like viral URI or influenza can trigger relapse of multiple sclerosis, for example. It does not trigger it or it does not cause it, but it may cause a relapse. For example, rabies vaccine had shown to develop, in some people had developed encephalomyelitis, Guillain-Barre after swine influenza virus vaccine, autoimmune thrombocytopenia, decrease in platelet count after measles vaccine have been reported. And some reported rheumatological disorders when people were given high-dose uh, steroids. So as we have more more 
people that we vaccinate, I know we will find, we will have more data and we'll be able to advise you accordingly. Yeah, I know it must be difficult as a healthcare provider to possibly have patients with that are immunocompromised and not really have a solid answer for them. And it must have been really difficult to treat COVID and diagnose it and help everyone when it first entered our society a year ago. And I was just curious how the treatment has developed over the past year and what are the current approaches to treating COVID? Not much in the treatment of COVID, unfortunately, although our scientists and healthcare professionals are busy conducting many, many trials. If you look at the NIH, there are hundreds and hundreds of trials out there. For now, it is more of a supportive treatment. Fortunately, most cases are mild, as we mentioned, not requiring hospitalizations. So sometimes because it's mild, it can be a disadvantage because people tend to not respect the gravity and the impact of COVID-19 and are more relaxed in terms of following or adhering to public health measures. So in terms of treatment of early disease, we don't have much out there. I know a lot of supplements are floating around there, high vitamin C plus zinc. This had been looked at, but there are smaller trials. Did they reduce severity and duration of symptoms? And this trial so far, one trial that had only 214 patients. So it's not it's less powered. They had shown no difference in severity and duration of symptoms. So, but it was a low powered study. So, but people still take vitamin C and zinc, vitamin D. So as we have more data, we could probably advise you more. And as you know, there was an emergency use approval of hydroxychloroquine by our previous administration in March and rapidly withdrawn in June of 2020 because it did not show evidence of efficacy on multiple trials, and there may be cardiac toxicity that has been shown. So it's recommended that it not be used with or without azithromycin in non-hospitalized and hospitalized patients unless you are in a clinical trial. And there had been other ongoing trials there on the value of ivermectin, monoclonal, early use of monoclonal antibodies, like Bumlinivimab in terms of treatment of mild to moderate disease in the prevention of hospitalization and severe disease. There have been trials on convalescent plasma, other biologics, hyperimmune globulin, anti other antiviral drugs, colchicin. Interleukin-6 antagonists show some promise early in the disease, oral steroids, pepsid or famotidine. So those are all out there. So the scientists are busy developing those. But for now, supportive measures, taking care of yourself, boosting your immune system, however that can be accomplished until we have the treatment. Right. And what about in hospitalized patients? In hospitalized uh, patients, obviously oxygen if needed, a supportive therapy like hydration if you if people are dehydrated, remdesivir IV, which is an RNA polymerase inhibitor, had been shown to shorten the duration of the illness in hospitalized patients, but has not been shown to impact mortality. So that's been used in people who are requiring oxygen but not high flow oxygen. 
uh, oxygen in people with a good oxygenation, like 94% oxygenation or maybe less. It has not, so remdesivir, as I mentioned, has not shown any advantage in terms of mortality. So, and it's in short supply now. Dexamethasone, however, is another player in hospitalized patients. And I believe it actually saved my life. It jumpstarted my response to the virus. But in hospitalized patients requiring increasing oxygen support, it had shown to decrease mortality. So this is the only one so far that has been shown to decrease mortality in hospitalized patients requiring increasing respiratory support. And if someone is experiencing COVID symptoms and still waiting for their swab test results, what would your recommendations be? And what symptoms should they monitor? What signs will indicate whether they should go to the hospital or not? Well, luckily, as I mentioned, that most people will have mild disease. So you could improve your hydration, improve your uh, immune system, rest, don't do all your projects when you're uh, succumbing to the infection, stay at home, prevent people from getting it from you while you're waiting for your swab. And you may want to take Tylenol if you have fever and some over-the-counter medications to treat symptoms of runny nose or cough, for example. So if you have mild disease, stay at home, boost your immune system, hydrate yourself. And then I will watch for the onset of severe symptoms. Like for example, if you are breathing rapidly to just maintain your oxygenation, like you're short of breath, you can't talk like me, you can't talk anymore because you're just so short of breath, then I would I would basically ask for medical help, either going to your provider, urgent care, or going to the emergency room when you are short of breath. Obviously, call 911 if you can't breathe anymore, or if you have the advantage of having a a pulse oximetry meter. And if your pulse oximetry, for example, started at 100% or 97%, and now it's going downhill, getting to 95%, 94% time to call for help. I hope that was helpful. Yeah, that was very helpful. I know we covered so many topics, but I think it's really important and helpful to deliver all of these important messages to people. And also listen to their concerns, engage with the community, and involve people that they trust. I love that we touched on speaking to children. It's so important to also communicate and engage them in this conversation as well. Yeah, I think so. I think communication is key in really getting control of this pandemic. And communication is multifaceted, as I mentioned. Most of it, we had been telling, telling, telling people, but we should start listening to people. We should engage the community and ask what they are concerns about and address those specific concerns. Because the complications of severe disease from this COVID-19 is vast. People develop respiratory failure, kidney and liver dysfunction, GI bleed, sepsis, septic shock, and unfortunately, some people die. So I hope podcasts like this will be helpful in improving how we deliver our messages and that we could be more compassionate and more helpful and more service to others is key and hope our leaders also will basically dump their own personal agenda and just care for people and serve people to the best that they can. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. 
Thank you so much for answering all these questions. I'm sure all these listeners are going to be very thankful that you touched on these really sensitive topics with us. Yeah, more to follow you guys. And thank you, Nicole. And thank you so much for our listeners and keep sending your concerns and questions. And we will address them in future and timely podcast updates. Sorry for the delay of this podcast because I'd been ill myself. Till then, please send us your comments to Medicine for Good Podcast at gmail.com or tweet or LinkedIn. Connect with me at Dr. Jet and spelled Dr. D-R Jet, J-E-T-T-E. Until then, thank you so much to our listeners. Stay in tune. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Medicine for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share with family and friends. Rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Acast, and YouTube. Follow me on social media at Dr. Jet on Twitter and Facebook. Meanwhile, stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. See you in our next episode.